we like to say you don't come to Breck to get away from it all. You come to Breck to be a part of it all. It's this hip mountain town with this insanely beautiful and incredible scenery. And the backdrop of this town are these five peaks, which is the centerpiece. And we have the highest chairlift in North America. And it and you mm-hmm. can ski all the way from 12,998 above and ski all the way down into the town in terms of a ski experience like this is the pinnacle welcome to the storm i'm your host Stuart winchester back to the epicenter today to the Times square of skiing summit county colorado before we get to that I want to remind you to please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is only a small part of the storm. In fact, the podcast is only a small part of the podcast. For each podcast you are listening to, there is a corresponding article on stormskiing.com that contains all sorts of additional context, including maps, statistics, and more detailed information on everything that we discuss in the podcast. Beyond the podcast, I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing with a minimum of 100 articles per year. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing newsletter instead. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Breckenridge, here is a quick word from my partner, Aspenware. Close your ticket windows with Aspenware. Aspenware is the leading e-commerce solution, purpose-built for the mountain resort industry. Aspenware creates robust platforms that drive revenue while providing a seamless online experience for your resort guests. Utilizing their extensive experience within the mountain resort industry, Aspenware creates customized e-commerce platforms that ensure resort guests spend more time doing what they love and less time standing in lines or booking their trip online. One client found such success with Aspenware's e-commerce solution that they were able to reduce their ticket windows from 13 down to just two. The resort then reassigned those staff members into positions where they could actively engage with guests and bring value to other areas of the resort. Based in Denver, Colorado, Aspenware stands apart as an innovator. They understand the value that software and technology bring to a mountain resort, and they strive to create solutions so good they seem invisible. Visit Aspenware.com to learn more. Episode 123, Jody Churich, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Breckenridge Resort, Colorado. Breckenridge, the top of American lift-served skiing. Literally. Breck's Imperial Superchair reaches higher than any other lift in North American skiing, dropping riders at 12,840 feet on peak 8. There's nothing quite like Breck. The views from the top of peaks 6, 7, and 8. The super fast lifts flying all over the place. The tremendous energy of the crowds. And the town below that knits the whole thing together. There are ski areas that almost none of you have ever heard of. And there are ski areas that nearly all of you have visited. And we all know which category Breckenridge fits into. For just about everyone who has ever ventured west to ski, 
Breck is a shared part of our ski experience. It is an icon and a common reference point for what skiing the West is and what skiing the West means. And as anyone who has skied the West in the past decade knows, that increasingly means you have company. And Breck has long been near or at the top of America's list of most visited resorts. To manage those crowds, the resort is in the midst of a massive modernization with a new high-speed quad replacing the antique Rips Ride lift last summer and an identical upgrade planned for the old five-chair this off-season. And late last year, Breck released an updated Forest Service master plan that outlined massive potential upgrades on Peak 9, including a gondola that could run parallel to Quicksilver and upgrades to the aging A, C, and E riblet chairs. And while the resort is a long way from finalizing any individual aspect of that plan, my guest today was more than happy to talk about Vail Resort's goal of making one of their most high-profile ski areas, quote, better, not bigger, end quote. Let's go. My guest today has been Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Breckenridge Ski Resort since June 2021. Breckenridge features 2,908 acres of terrain served by 35 lifts on a 3,398-foot vertical drop. Breckenridge averages 350 inches of average annual snowfall and sits at a base elevation of 9,600 feet. Prior to taking the top job at Breckenridge, she held the same position at Keystone Resort. She also spent one year at Park City served five and a half years as the Chief Operating Officer of Powder Core's Woodward Parks, and ran Boreal and Soda Springs as General Manager of those Tahoe ski areas from 2007 to 2012. She began her industry career as a Director of Sales and Marketing for Alpine Meadows from 1998 to 2007. Jody Churich is my guest. Jody, welcome to the storm. So fired up to have you today. How are you doing on this morning? Hi, Stuart. Super excited to be here. And uh, it's a chilly one degrees here in Summit County, Colorado. So I'm doing great. Um, yeah, it's been an amazing season. So happy to get started and chat. So are you are you getting some unseasonable cold out there? I was skiing out in California last week and we were kind of getting January temps from what everyone around me was describing. Are you seeing the same in Colorado? These cold patterns are holding on deep into the season? We absolutely are. It's been very cold um, with this latest storm. I think we just hit 17 inches this week. So unseasonably quite snowy and cold here and in typical Breck fashion, um, just excited to, to keep that high alpine terrain just super chalky and powdery. So it's been great. So how has the season gone from a snowfall point of view, from a visitation point of view, from a crowding point of view? How has everything been skiing at Breck for the 2022 to 23 ski season? Yeah, it's been an awesome season so far. I'm I'm just super proud of our team here at Breck. Our employees really stepped up. We kicked off the season two days early this winter. We were able to debut our, our upgraded RIPS ride chairlift on peak eight, which was an awesome addition. And it just expanded our learning area. And we're, we're seeing solid snowfall this year. We're at 260 inches, which we've had 100% of our terrain open 
across all five peaks and and it was quite early um, that we got our high alpine open i think we were ahead of of our projections by two weeks so we're now rolling into spring although it doesn't feel quite spring-like yet but we'll get there um, so it sounds like you're set up pretty well for possibly a long season as well breckenridge does often stay open until memorial day uh, how are you feeling about this year? Do you have a closing date yet? And how are you feeling about a possible extension? Yeah, I mean, our plan is to stay open as long as we can into May. As you know, everything can change overnight with temperatures and weather. And yeah, I feel pretty confident about our May operation this year. And we'll just play it day by day. But we're looking quite favorable for the snow to last well into May this year. So the date may change. Does the footprint change depending on snowpack or do you say okay after this day we're only going to run this peak and these trails because that's the staffing we have or do you have a little bit of room to flex if say you have a really good snowpack and some of these folks are starting to get let go at keystone and need some work from down the road yeah i mean that's the beauty of keystone you know certainly gets the season rolling early and brack picks up the back end of the season with our late spring skiing and you know it's a combination of really there's some critical key connector trails that we need to keep that May operation going. We're fully staffed. So the staffing pieces is not the issue as much as just really making sure we have those connecting trails. Um, And that I feel like that's really the beauty for our Epic Pass holders is that they get that early start at Keystone and then they get to move straight into late May with with BRAC. So what kind of ride is there with Breck staff at being the late operator in Colorado, because you're around these really iconic resorts in Vail, Beaver Creek, and Keystone, all in your Vail family. But Breck is the one that either because of the high altitude or because of tradition or or whatever it is, maybe you can shed some light on that. But but you know, how much does the staff like that being the last one standing each year? <laughs> it's a it's a dual edged sword. Everybody's excited um, on the team to be able to offer that ski terrain. I mean, we have some pretty amazing high alpine terrain that we keep open in the spring. But at the same time, we do want to switch focuses and get ready. You know, we have a robust summer operation as well. And then on the heels of that, we have a very big chairlift installation project that we're we're going to get started on on peak eight. So the spring operation this year will move over to peak seven. And so we'll have our imperial chair, the T-bar, and then peak six and seven offered. So it's a pretty robust operation, to be honest with you. And I want to get a little bit into that five chair upgrade and and some of the other points that you touched on shortly. But, but first, Jody, let's go back here a little bit. As I mentioned, you spent a long time in Tahoe super interesting ski market. Like I mentioned, I was there last week and had a ton of fun. And, and wow, they're having an amazing snow year. I imagine you are not envious of your fellows dealing with all that snow. They're getting 700 inches in a lot of cases, but you, you've you really moved around in the ski industry. So let's just go back here. Where did you grow up, Joe? Did you grow up in the Tahoe area or in California or or elsewhere? And how did you come to Tahoe? I did. I'm a, I'm a California native. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area. And Tahoe was our go-to family skiing destination, spending, you know, a lot of time between Sierra at Tahoe and North Star and a lot of the resorts in between. And yeah, it was our backyard and my heart is in Tahoe always. I've, I've lived through some of these big winters and definitely am proud of that team out there for all the hard work that they've had to go through this season just to stay dug out and stay operational. 
So you mentioned growing up skiing Sierra Tahoe. What was your reaction watching that resort burn in September 2021? And then watching the amazing comeback that they've had under a very different footprint, a very different looking and feeling resort, but nonetheless a comeback. Yeah, I mean, John Rice and his team at Sierra Tahoe have done a, um, an amazing job. And I would say Matt Jones at Kirkwood and Tom Fortune leading Heavenly through all of that was just really an amazing collaboration with the Forest Service and Cal Fire and just hats off to that team for working so well together. I think being able to utilize the snowmaking utilities and being able to just fend off the fire and really direct the fire was just pretty incredible to watch and sad and scary. And yeah, my kids still live in Tahoe. So Mm. I, I was watching it closely. I was out there for part of it and just feel for that team and proud of them, to be honest. How hard is that to watch from a distance, these places that you care about so much and where you have these colleagues and friends I mean, how bad do you want to just get out there and get your hands in and try to fix it up yourself? And how hard is it to just sit on the sidelines? Yeah, it's a fair question. It's really hard to sit on the sidelines, um, but it is the right thing to do. They had all the resources that they needed and, and we were all here to help and support when they needed it. The company had a ton of support headed in their direction. So yeah, it's it's hard to watch and also so proud. Just proud of what they accomplished and and managed to save through the whole thing. So as I mentioned in the intro, you spent a long time working in Tahoe. Was that your first job in skiing was in the Tahoe region or did you start elsewhere? No, it definitely was in Tahoe. My first job was an internship for Squaw Valley, uh, Mm. which is now Palisades. I was Mm. a, a marketing intern as I was just completing my senior year in college. And when my internship ended, I spent the winter teaching in the kids ski school. And that's kind of where the fire in my belly started. I really just grew this amazing passion, very directed at kids on snow. And I've I've kind of carried that through to a lot of projects over the years. So you started out on that side of what's now Palisades Tahoe, jump over then to Alpine Meadows, or was there a stop in between? So I spent the winter um, teaching in the kids' school and applied for a marketing coordinator position at Alpine. Um, And this was long before they were connected. So that was my big launch into the ski industry was my first year as the marketing coordinator at Alpine. And that's a special place. And many, many, many locals tell me that that is still their favorite sides of the Palisades Tahoe Resort and describe it as sort of zen over there. Take us back here, Jody. What was Alpine Meadows like? back in the 90s. I mean, Tahoe is is just so interesting because you have all these resorts, but they're all so different and so distinct with their own personality and characteristics. So so take us back here and, and set this up. What was Alpine Meadows like when you started? Yeah, honestly, Stuart, Alpine was one of the big resorts at the time and was considered the big league. So I was just excited to get in on the ground level. And Alpine is the locals favorite or was the locals favorite um, mountain where it was really around the hardcore skiers. It had the lake view. And so from a marketing perspective, it was all about capturing that lake in the background and that skiers mountain feel. I was actually at Alpine before Powder purchased it. It was owned previously by Nick Badami, who was an acquaintance of the Cumming family. Mm. So I actually remember meeting the Cummings as they came in and did their first site tour. And I vividly remember 
when Alpine did not allow snowboarding and having mm -hmm. that discussion with John coming around the importance of inclusion at that point. It, what did change his mind? <laughs> A lot of discussions around how do we become inclusive and making sure that we opened our doors to everyone. And, you know, I was in sales and marketing at the time and I was like, John, like, here the here's the data on this here's a whole market a growing market that we're excluding and you know over lots of conversations he he said okay yeah we we want to be inclusive and what was that like i think there's always a fear of the unknown right and obviously many mountains have had the same story and we still have a handful of holdouts from snowboarding and the same tired arguments are recycled for those mountains and their constituents, but having lived through the cultural change and having been part of it, what was it like? Did it end up being nothing and, and people just showed up and they kind of forgot about it? Was there a little resistance and then it faded? Was it a persistent problem? Take us through that. What was that like to go through that process? Yeah. I mean, it's the, the unknown that you don't know when you make a big decision like that, but it, at the end of the day, it's a culture change and it's just people learning how to work together on the mountain. And I think as I look back, the friction and tension between skiers and snowboarders was short-lived. Mm -hmm. And as snowboarding just continued to grow, it became, you know, the behavior started to assimilate together. And I think it was the right decision. And for me, it was a little bit of a launch pad into action sports. Shortly after we brought snowboarding on at Alpine Meadows, John asked if I would oversee the terrain parks, which was kind of an anomaly at the time to have this marketing person overseeing terrain parks. But it, it truly then did kind of grow and later on into the Woodward business. So I think culturally it just took time. But when I look back, it was absolutely the right, right decision. Some folks listening to this might have perked their ears up when you said Powdercore bought Alpine Meadows. Of course, now Alpine Meadows is owned by Altera Mountain Company. It's just funny, these historical footnotes as you move ski resorts around between companies. And I won't get into today the fact that Aspen used to own Breckenridge, which is also a curious thing. But I will ask you about Powder and Alpine because you were there. It's funny to think that Powdercore sold Alpine Meadows because it's such a great asset were you surprised when that happened? And do you have any insight into why that happened? Why Powdercore sold Alpine? Yes, I was surprised at the sale, particularly as JMA was not an obvious ski resort operator or one that had a known collection of resorts. So it was a bit surprising. And to be honest, I don't want to pretend to know, you know, what the direct cause of the sale was, but I think it, it offered the coming family an opportunity or powder Corp to, to invest in other areas. So you decided to stay with powder Corp. Well, that's, that's my assumption based on your resume, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. So you go from Alpine to Boreal and Soda Springs, I guess, just set this up for us. Did you in fact make a conscious decision that you liked powder Corp and you want to stay with them rather than Alpine? And did they already own Boreal and Soda Springs? I don't have my timeline completely straight there. And it was an easy move over for you. Or did they acquire those after they sold Alpine? Yeah, Boreal and Soda were under the ownership of, of Powder Corp prior. So when they bought Alpine, Boreal and Soda were purchased in that same kind of timeline or time frame. And so Boreal and Soda Springs were not part of the sale. And I did have loyalty to Powder at that time and, and felt like the better opportunity was to stay with Powder. 
and John Cumming extended the offer for me to lead Boreal and Soda Springs operations, which was incredibly rare during that period of time in the ski industry for a female to be a leader at a resort. Mm. I think at the time it was just me, Pat Campbell, Kelly Pollock with NSAA and leadership wow. positions um, in the industry, in the entire industry at that time. And I was I was really familiar with Boreal and Soda as I was overseeing the marketing for Alpine Boreal and Soda at the time. And so I was well acquainted with the brand, the feeder markets, the finances, the mountain operations, and it just seemed like the natural next step for me. Um, and I, I jumped right through it. I made my first game time move, reimagining the entire base area lifts and, and snowmaking infrastructure. I made a pretty big major talent adjustment. I brought on Shadar Edelman as my director of mountain operations, which is pretty ironic. Now he is the VP of mountain operations at Park City. Mm, wow. Yeah. And, and, a you know, there are a few other Boreal and Soda teammates that have recently joined Vail, um, including Amy O'Ran, who's the new GM at North Star, and and Danny Waite, our our patrol director at North Star. So I'm I'm really surrounded by many women leading resorts. In fact, four out of the five of my colleagues here in Colorado and Utah resorts are run by women. So pretty pretty crazy to think back um, that Pat Campbell and I Kelly were like the first. How much of a, and I don't want to jump ahead too far here, but how much of a factor was that in your decision to move to Vail? The fact that this is a company where I think it's 10 right now of the general managers of the 37 resort or 41 resorts they have are female and Vail has made this very deliberate. And they've made that clear to me that it is deliberate to empower and promote women leaders. How important is that to you? And, and how much pride does that give you in working for Vail Resorts? It gives me a ton of pride to know that we are role models for future women in the industry, knowing that there's opportunities and leadership ahead of them. And it is very intentional at Vail Resorts. And I am so proud. I'm Kirsten Lynch as our CEO Angela Korth is our CFO, and I'm just surrounded by just amazingly talented, smart, and thoughtful, compassionate female leaders. And how do you set that up as a leader, Jody? Because I, I would imagine you have several thousand folks working at Breckenridge for you. I don't know the exact number, but how do you take the initiative then to make sure that you're setting up the next generation of female leaders to be able to follow all of these women that you have running Bell Resorts now? Yeah, I mean, I, I am completely genuine in this. I mentor as many um, women as I can and just making sure that, that they're their authentic self, that people in leadership development can be themselves and show up and know that they're supported and that there, there are people here to support their journey. And it's a huge part of Vail Resorts. And I'm just so proud to be a part of, of these leading women. Yeah, I think the future is really, really bright in our company for up and coming female leaders. So you get this opportunity in Tahoe, just to jump back there for a moment. And you have a lot to prove and not because you're a woman, but because these these resorts are really interesting to me, you know, you go out to Tahoe, go around the lake and you have Palisades Tahoe and Sugar Bowl and North Star and Mount Rose. And 
Diamond Peak and Heavenly and Kirkwood and Sierra Tahoe. These are all big, really substantial ski areas with thousands of acres, thousands of feet of vertical drop. Then you have Soda and Boreal, which are kind of like Midwest ski areas stuck in North Tahoe. And I have to imagine that in order to succeed among those giants, you really need a, a good story to tell. So what sets these two ski areas apart and how did you go about crafting that identity so that they would succeed and not get buried alive by these monsters that are all around it? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And I would say, you know, introducing the Woodward brand at Boreal was, it was game changing. It really set the mountain apart from all of those resorts that you just listed. And it really drove this youth culture at Boreal and, and yeah, it was for sure swimming in the deep end a little bit. Action sports was a a test in my learning agility and bringing that product on, not only because it you know, 30,000 square foot action sports facility dropped onto <laughs> Boreal's head at the time. But, you know, it it quickly showed the progression that you could learn indoors and take those learnings of aerial awareness out onto the mountain. So it was pretty game time changing for, for Boreal. And, and I would say the one thing about Soda Springs, you know, is three miles away on Donner Summit. And you know, again, kind of digging back into my kids' experiences mm. on snow, I really recognized there was an opportunity to expand Soda's footprint and be unique in driving kids to snow. And so we built this product called Planet Kids, and I, I pitched it to John Cumming. Using my marketing background, I was like, hey, look, we have these kids coming here, and they're just playing with buckets in the snow, and how can yeah. we really truly engage them and set them on a ski career or, you know, life experiences. And so we built this thing called Planet Kids and it turned into this just wonderful little Disneyland for children on snow. Um, And so, you know, I think it's things like that where you can really just start to differentiate yourself. And that kind of launched this big opportunity around Woodward. So it sounds like you really we're part of a lot of really exciting, really innovative things. I think Woodward captures what the kids call the progression of the sport and sort of creates a a zone for that in a way that nothing else really has. And it's just a a tremendous concept that Powdercore has expanded across their portfolio. And it sounds like you did a nice job of setting up Soda and Boreal for their distinctive markets in a very tough competitive market. Nonetheless, Vail Resorts comes calling. What was the appeal of joining Vail to you? Why did you make that move? Well, I mean, Vail Resorts is the leader in the industry, and I had, had admired the leadership of Blaze Carrig and Pat Campbell and very particularly Bill Rock. And the timing was just right to join Bill's team at Park City Mountain back in 2018. Um, I joined as the senior director of skier services, which oversees the ski school and product sales, guest services, all the summer operations. And oddly enough, I had taught skiing, as I mentioned, way back at Palisades, as previously mentioned, but I had never been certified as I went straight into marketing. So I, when Bill hired me into that role, I quickly jumped into the first certification clinic and earned my level one pin. And I I just felt like I wanted to lead one of the 
biggest ski and snowboard schools with as much you know authenticity as possible mm -hmm. um, to to run a line of business of that size you truly have to understand all of the moving parts and the mechanics to be truly effective so yeah it was it was uh exciting and joining Vail has been just absolutely amazing for me so you go through this rapid progression at Vail as so many folks at Vail do and you move from Park City to Keystone to Breck Talk about this journey and just what it was like for this California native who had spent their whole career on Tahoe to get out into these other ski epicenters around the country. Just what was that like culturally for you? And then just talk about your progression, your career progression. So you took the top job at Breck. Yeah, thanks for asking. It was, it's very, it's quite different, but very similar all at the same time. You know, at the end of the day, we're all all mountain resort outdoor people. So just living in different mountain communities, my husband and I and, and our kids have friends all over now mm -hmm. because of it and, and because of that opportunity. That's the huge plus side of this. But in all honesty, each community and mountain and operation has its, you know, really unique identity and, and they're all very complex. So I'm fortunate that I've been given the opportunity to experience a variety of regions and to get to work with so many team members across the company, I mean, I have had exposure to so many people. It's, you know, I say this, but every time I, I join a new resort and Breck is my eighth, I really approach it with a beginner's mindset. You know, mm. I want to keep fresh eyes as long as I possibly can to, to fully enable myself to learn the teams, the challenges, all the opportunities mm. and I would say having the exposure to a variety of mountains and, and teams and talent and communities, it's just really allowed me to bring a little bit of wisdom and learning from each so I can apply that as I join new new resorts. So you get to Breck, Jody, and, and obviously at that point, you'd worked at some pretty fabulous ski areas. Breck, though, is just, it's on another level. It's iconic. It's one of those handful of ski areas that whether you're a skier or not, you've probably heard of it. And, you know, it's not like, like Boreal and Soda Springs, those are challenging. You have to find your niche, but, it, but if you mess them up, there's less of a spotlight on it. Right. So Breck is, it's this institution, it's this huge thing. So what's that pressure like being in charge of a resort like this? And how do you view that responsibility as the kind of ultimate steward of this iconic American ski area? Oh yeah. Breck is it's at the pinnacle. And I got to tell you, Stuart, like, I absolutely love it here for a few different reasons. It is one of the most popular resorts in the country. And we like to say you don't come to Breck to get away from it all. You come to Breck to be a part of it all. And right. it's this, it's this hip mountain town with this insanely beautiful and incredible scenery and the backdrop of this town are these five peaks, which is the centerpiece. So I think, you know, as I approached Breckenridge, it was really to understand how the community, the town, and the employees could make each other better. So that's kind of the approach that I've taken here. We, we really sat down and looked at what are our three core priorities, and, and those being for sure our employees first, our community, and really trying to understand the flow and circulation of the resort. So Brackenridge, you know, I mean, we have the highest chairlift in North America and it, and you mm -hmm. can ski all the way from 12,998 
feet above and ski all the way down into the town. In terms of a ski experience, like this is the pinnacle and it's big, but we're a big collective team. Before I came to Breck, I tried to understand what I was looking at for opportunities and challenges. And I, and, you know, having four base portal areas, trying to pull that team together as one is, is a challenge. And I feel like we've done a good job at creating a one team kind of mindset here. You mentioned that Breck was one of the busiest scaries in America for many years. It was the busiest scary in America. I'm not sure if that's still true. Do, do you know if, if Breck is still number one in visitation? I would say we're the most popular in the U.S., that is for sure. And why is that, Jody? Because, yes, all the things you just said are true. But from a sheer statistical point of view, that doesn't make sense. It's smaller than Keystone, little known fact. It's not necessarily any easier to get to than Copper or Vale or Beaver Creek. So what is it about Breck? There must be something intangible there. Because if it's not the biggest and it's not the easiest to get to, and it's right next to all these other super iconic places. Why is it so popular? I, what, what do you think that intangible thing is that draws so many folks to this particular area? You know, what I have found to be true is the the vibe that this town and mountain have collectively is it's got high energy and it and it's easy for a vacation, right? Like a lot of our ski trails are ski up right up to the lodging accommodations we have not only peak eight with our gondola that comes right out of main street we also have peak nine that comes right out of main street so Mm. you know the access to the mountain and the town i think is the experience i mean the vibe here is real it's it's a fun place to come and the people are i want to be clear like this community welcomes our guests and it's not this overprotective we don't want tourism here it's it's welcoming tourism and i think that that matters that communities in the mountains are parallel in the thinking of how we vision the whole town and mountain experience as one and i think that's super important so you have this really amazing place to live and to play and to work and you're surrounded as i mentioned by some great cousins or sisters or however you want to say it with Vale, Beaver Creek and Keystone. Just talk a little bit, Jody, and and I know you led Keystone for a while. Talk about the interplay between those four ski areas and how they work together and complement each other and sort of what sets each of them apart. And I have had your colleagues, Beth Howard and Nadia Guerrero on the podcast, and, and they did a great job of explaining the tradition and everything else of Vale and Beaver Creek. But just curious from your point of view, how these four complement each other and also what sets them apart. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of the Epic Pass and our close proximity. You can get a very differentiated experience and vibe all within an hour's drive, which I think is just the most amazing thing. I mean, Brack, as we just talked about, is that true mountain town and resort experience being very interconnected. And then just 20 minutes away, you have Keystone. And that's that family-oriented resort where you have great kids activations like the snow fort and night skiing and and then just over the pass, I mean, it's 30 minutes away, Vail, with this amazing European-style village and the legendary back bowls. And then a 
completely different experience going over to Beaver Creek with all the amazing secret powder pockets. They've got amazing dining with the on-mountain cabins. I would say, Stuart, one of the coolest parts about our group here in Colorado is that we're all on the same team. Like we work together really well and we work together closely. We're all on this Rocky Mountain team together, which includes Park City and Crested Butte, um, which are both just an easy trip away. But, you know, I would say that collaboration and camaraderie among us, you know, Beth and Nadia and Deidre Walsh over in, in Park City and Tara, who's running Crested Butte and Chris Sorensen. I mean, these are some of the greatest human beings that I've had the pleasure of working with over the course of my career. And I think, you know, there's a learning from one another to each other and, and it's a huge benefit of our network. So it's, it's cool. We have a, a team of really passionate and hardworking leaders. And I would say that's a big win. A quick break, then we will get back to Jody and Breckenridge. Today's episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is sponsored by CORE, Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Ski season is in full swing, which means more riders, and more riders means more lift maintenance issues. I know a lot of you listening are leading large teams of lift maintenance pros, and I know you want them to succeed. Well, this is your solution. CORE's online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians that your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA Level 1 requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry and includes industry expert sessions, on-site assessments, and all course materials. Sign up your lift maintenance team at beeve.es backslash storm so they know that I sent you. That's B-E-A-V dot E-S backslash storm. All right, back to Jody and Breck. So it sounds like you have a great dynamic and you're living in a place and working in an environment that you really love. There are some challenges in Breckenridge, uh, forefront among them, I believe, for most locals would be housing. And there's just all sorts of factors playing into this from the rise of short-term rentals to COVID era remote worker relocations. At the same time, Vale is working very hard to build more employee housing. To help us understand a little bit, Jody, the housing dynamic in Breckenridge, the, the extent of the crunch there, and how you as a leader are prioritizing that and what you're doing to help ease that for employees. Yeah, housing is for sure um, one of the biggest challenges that we face pretty much in every resort community. And I would say in Summit County, we're actually quite fortunate. We have the largest employee housing bed base in the company with oh, wow. about 2,000 beds for employees between Brack and Keystone. Uh, but that said, we are completely actively working to grow the number of housing options. And we're working actively working with the town of Breckenridge and local developers to identify some opportunities for the future. And how much has uh, your efforts toward housing, Jody, helped with staffing up the resort? And and I'm curious how that combines with the $20 an hour minimum wage at Vail Instituted last year. And I recently spoke to your colleague, Brett Cook, out in Western Pennsylvania, and 
$20 an hour there is a revolution. I mean, that's basically tripling their wage in a couple of years. I would imagine that doesn't go quite as high in Summit County, where the cost of living has always been higher than a lot of areas in the country, kind of more com- comparable to a large city. So has the minimum wage helped, the bump helped, um, and how does that interplay with housing? And, and were you able to get fully staffed up this year? Yes, we were and are fully staffed this year. Uh, huge. The the $20 an hour minimum wage was, I'm so proud of the company that we came out in front with that. And we are very fortunate in Summit County with our housing. So the two together have been a, a very big part of our success story. And you know, I think it didn't stop there. The $20 an hour is and was a very big piece. But in addition to that, our company rolled out 40% off our rental retail locations. We expanded wellness benefits and, and benefits for reproductive rights. I mean, it's a big step and a commitment from the company that the company has not backed off on. And I think it just shows, you know, the investment in our employees. And I would say at Breckenridge specifically, something I'm very proud of is that we launched a licensed year-round child care program for our employees mm. this season. And child care is, is a struggle. It's a critical need in our community. And it's now a benefit for our employees. And as a result, the, the broader community, we've been able to take our, our staff members off the local child care wait list, which is just a really, really big win for both the resort and our, our local community. So I think just the overall impact of all of these investments is incredible and has helped us become fully staffed. That's an amazing benefit. And I'm speaking as someone who has two children and has had to figure out childcare in a very difficult market over the years. So is that something, and maybe you're not sure of the answer to this question, but is the childcare benefit something that's specific to BRAC? Is that something that you started? And if so, often Vale will use individual resources as an incubator, right? That's the advantage of having a large network is you can try something somewhere and then expand it to other places. So if it is specific to Breck, do you get the sense that Vail may be piloting this at Breck to perhaps try at some of its other resorts? I, you know, every resort community is different and has different needs. I would say I do know that there are other resorts within the Vail family that offer employee childcare. I met with the local town council and really was on a listening tour in my first year at Breck and and realized this was quickly rising to becoming the number one critical need in the community. And we had the space and yeah, spun up the staffing and, you know, the licensing and, and really went for it. And I think it's been just a big win for everyone. And, and most importantly, making sure it was an important move for our employees. You know, Stuart, like I said, our three core priorities were employees, community, and flow and circulation. And and so that's how I was able to really just make that decision happen. So lots of positive momentum, lots of good things happening. One unfortunate reality of running a major ski resort is that sometimes you do have to deal with skier fatalities. One happened just this past Friday, March 24th, when John Peruco, a 60-year-old man from Elgin, Illinois, fell approximately 25 feet from the Zendo chair and later died. I don't want to get too much into the specifics of that. My condolences to his family. It's very sad, obviously, anytime this dies. But according to the NSAA, 57 skiers died in the 2021-22 to ski season while skiing. That's the latest season that we have 
statistics for. So, so this is a reality of the business. And when you run a large ski resort like Breckenridge, I have to imagine it's not a matter of if, but when. So Jody, as a leader, how do you manage these sorts of situations? And how do you prepare your employees to deal with the trauma? You know, to, to give you an example, I've lived in New York City for a couple of decades, and sometimes people jump in front of the subways. And when they do that, when that happens, there's a whole process. And the conductor or the driver of the train goes through some counseling and, and has all these resources available to them. So I'm just curious what kind of infrastructure Breckenridge or more widely available resorts has to deal with these unfortunate circumstances that pretty much no matter what you do are going to happen eventually, just given the nature of the business. Yeah, Stuart, it's so, so tough. A tragic event like this one is tough on everyone. And we send all of our sympathy to support the guest family and friends. And, you know, out of respect for the family, I don't want to get into too many specifics, but we do have a network of team members that provide family and employee support in these circumstances. And I just can't say enough about our ski patrol and what they do every single day, day in and day out. They are the most compassionate and well-trained. I mean, it's, they're the best in the business. And, you know, again, I've, I've been at it's my eighth resort and this team here is so caring and so thoughtful and, you know, we're all here for each other and, and that matters in these moments. If an employee goes through something like that and they're, they need a little time, I mean, is, is that something that's built into this? Oh, absolutely. We, um, we have an amazing support system company-wide for wellness and support and, and our, our ski patrol and our family team are trained highly in these areas. So I feel really good about what we do to support the team members, but we all go through it together and we, we talk about it and we get through it together. Very sad situation and glad to hear your employees have the tools they need to deal with it. Let's let's get into the future here a little bit. Let's get into your Breckenridge master plan. And this is a document that since you sit on Forest Service land or since most of your ski trails and lifts sit on Forest Service land, Breckenridge, like any ski resort in such a circumstance, has to submit an updated master plan every 10 years. And yours was accepted by the Forest Service late last year. I want to focus big picture here first, because you had some really interesting headlines that you focused on. And I think that these really tell us where Breckenridge is going. So the plan stated that, quote, the structuring vision for the next 10 years at Breckenridge is better, not bigger, end quote. And then you said that, quote, significant congestion can diminish the guest experience, end quote. The master plan went on to state that, quote, the goal is not to increase overall skier and rider visits on or around peak days, but rather to concentrate on improving the guest experience and better managing visitation, end quote. So there's a lot in there, and I can come to my own sort of assumptions, but I would rather hear you spell this out for us, how you narrowed it on these main goals and how you hope to achieve them with the master plan of better, not bigger. Yeah, the master plan has been just a work of art. Um, better, not bigger is definitely our, our purpose and need here at BRAC. And, you know, from an, a resort standpoint, it is all about flow and circulation. And as I've talked about it, it's one of our top three priorities at the resort. And 
you know, Breck is a big, big mountain that spans five peaks accessed through four portal base areas. Our master plan around Better Not Bigger focuses really on improving that flow and allowing our guests to get into underutilized terrain. I mean, we are, we are so big. There's tons of terrain and plenty of room for everybody. And so we've really focused on improving the portal lifts as kind of that first area of improvement and getting those portal lifts to high-speed detached quads or larger chairs for improving that access and, and getting people to use different areas of the mountain where terrain, like I say, is just completely underutilized. So that's been our focus. It's a lot of planning around how can we improve access from all those main portals and and getting guests spread out across the mountain. You know, and it's it's also too a bit about education, about helping people better navigate and move about the resort. There's so many days I'm riding a, a chair and people are studying the map on the chairlift bar. And I think most people will tell you, like, I just don't know where to go um, with that education piece as well. Vail's sort of gone away from paper trail maps, and they're heading toward this app that they're rolling out next year that will kind of show you right where you're at on the trail map. I'm just curious of your thoughts on how useful that will be at Breckenridge, because I haven't been a big proponent of the move to mobile maps just because I don't think a phone is a great uh, device to view a large trauma on. However, Vale did get my attention with this notion of sort of pinpointing you right on the map. Curious if you think that will be helpful to help people get around or some of your other thoughts on this technology that Vale's introducing that will perhaps help improve that on-mountain experience. Yeah, I mean, I think like anything else, we're trying to be as sustainable as possible. And so the move, you know, we have our big trail maps that are posted all over the mountain. We have electronic reader boards that help you navigate now, knowing where we have wait times and how to navigate that way. Um, So I think it is important, you know, first and foremost, we want to be sustainable and removing the paper product is, is important. I am excited for the new app and the mobile technology so that you can track where you're going, where you've been and those types of things. But we do have our trail maps on our lift bars, on most lifts. So we do make it pretty easy for you to to orient as you're moving about the mountain. And I think that's just a big part of where we're going. The use of Epic Mix Alerts is also something that we're really leaning into and making sure people have the latest updated information. I know we're we're really hyper-focused on our arrivals and departures so that people know where to park and how to flow into the resorts more smoothly. All right, let's drill into this master plan a little bit. There's a lot of really cool elements. And, you know, before I get to these, Jody, I I do want to emphasize that these are just ideas. So I I know sometimes folks get a little jumpy talking about these because it's it's a plan and plans change and, and these things will evolve over time. But I want to focus in particular on peaks eight and nine, because that's where most of the most exciting developments, at least from a skier's point of view, could potentially be happening. Let's start on peak nine, where more than 40% of your traffic currently enters. You have just one lift out of the base, which is Quicksilver. Uh, If you're up a little farther, you can also get out on Beaver Run. But you also have three super old riblet lifts in C, A, and E. So it's great terrain. It's a great entry portal, but you have a a lot of room to improve. So talk about peak nine in particular and the changes you want to make there and why you're focusing so much energy on this portal. Yeah, 
Um, well, exciting. Peak 8 with the Upgrade of Rips ride, huge game changer for our learning terrain. It also is a quick lift to get you from Peak 8 over to Peak 9. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll just kind of start with Peak 8, you know, expanding our plans to expand five chair this summer to a high-speed quad is exciting. Like that will complete this amazing reimagination of PK, not only to expand and improve our learning area for children, but really that progression from Rip's ride to the next step on the mountain so that people don't just see the Colorado chair and jump in line. Um, mm -hmm. We're really trying to build that progression on peak eight which then really puts our focus onto peak nine as, you know, it's our highest concentration of lifts on the mountain, most with fixed grip lifts. And then that one Quicksilver six pack as that main lift over on peak nine. So that's where our focus will shift to. And, and I would just say really happy with peak seven. We added the freedom super chair last year. And it has really changed the dynamics of the way our guests are utilizing peak six and seven. So some of these better, not bigger plans really come to fruition when you look at some of these moves that we've made. But as it relates to peak nine, high on the list of priorities, we'll be adding a gondola to the peak nine base area, which would be in addition to the Quicksilver lift. Mm -hmm. um, one of our primary goals with that project would be to turn peak nine into a world-class learning center. We have some amazing terrain up on peak nine in what we call the frontier area. And it's just amazing for first timers and beginners. So that would be sort of high on our priority list as we move over to peak nine. So to put a point on this, for those of you listening, and I'll also include this map on the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com, but that gondola would, according to the master plan map, be slated to load right a little bit down mountain from Quicksilver and terminate a little short of it with this mid-mountain learning area. So just talk about that alignment and how you picked that and why it's so close to Quicksilver. And then just the advantage of having, of moving some beginners up the mountain. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea with a gondola out of this portal area is to really allow first timers never ever on snow to be able to walk on to a gondola as, as opposed to getting onto a chairlift. So that's the number one criteria there. And I think importantly, how we came up with the alignment or location on, on the master plan is we put a round table of ski and ride school instructors together and really wanted to hear their thoughts on what they needed to be successful in that learning zone. And so this was a combination of a lot of input from many of our team members that are on the ground teaching. And so you know, the gentle terrain up in that frontier Red Rover trail area is just perfect. And this would really set Breckenridge apart as a, a world-class learning area. So elsewhere on Peak 9, it's a little discombobulating, right? Because you're all up to Breck and it's this super modern, super nice area. And you have these little riblets peppered throughout the resort. And on Peak 9, you have A, C, and E. And look, I, I like classic lifts as much as the next person. I think they're very charming. I think they're very cool looking. I think they're very nostalgic. However, if you go down the road to Beaver Creek, you're not going to find 50-year-old riblet lifts, right? So talk about each of those lines, which serve great terrain, but from the way that your master plan described them, maybe you can add a little color to this. They're underutilized. I think folks see the high-speed chairs, they gravitate back toward them. These are all sort of mid-mountain lifts that would keep folks from coming 
back to the base with upgrades. So talk about the logic there. And if you could, which ones you would prioritize of the three? Great question. Again, um, you're you're right on point with our priorities of this whole idea of flow and circulation. I mean, ideally, the A chair is a complement to the gondola. It would be a clear progression for those using the gondola and the learning zone to move right on over to A chair. So I would say those two are in complement to each other. And then for sure, C chair, that upgrade would provide just a much better option for lapping a lot of underutilized black and blue terrain on peak nine. Mm -hmm. um, and then each air, which I use all the time, it's how I get from peak eight to nine. And it, you know, it accesses a lot of expert terrain. So I think, you know, people would be able to lap that terrain faster. And it really is, like I say, a, a circulation point between peak eight and peak nine. So, you know, in order of priority, that gondola definitely rises to the top. Some of these riblets you would replace with high-speed lifts would have slightly different alignments. Uh, without going into the specifics, how do you go through that process? Do you, do you work with SE group or something similar? Do, does Vale do that internally when you decide? I believe A is going to set in a slightly different alignment and um, E may as well. So so how do you go through that process and figure out, okay, you know, we've had this lift here for 50 years. We've learned our lessons. Maybe it just needs to go, you know, 50 feet to the left or whatever. You know, Stuart, I'm always super impressed with how well you know <laughs> all of these um, mountain planning tactics. And so <laughs> great you. question. We we do have an on-site mountain planner that works actually here in Colorado. He covers quite a few resorts, but very well educated on the terrain. And so we kind of start there. We just kind of map it out and, and then we go ski it and, and look at where we have congestion points or opportunities for better terrain utilization. And so it kind of starts there. Our team and the mountain planners get together and then we do bring in consultants and work with them on, you know, lift alignments and, and those types of things. Let's move over here to peak eight, Jody. You mentioned their new Rips Ride lift and I was skiing, it was part of your big epic lift upgrade that the company did last year. I was skiing around with your colleague out at Heavenly Tom Fortune a few days ago, and he told me their new high-speed quad had really just changed the way that whole Nevada side of the mountain skis because it took what was a 17-minute lift ride and moved it to a five-minute lift ride or, or whatever, those are approximate numbers, and skiers were realizing, oh, this is really great terrain over there and using it. How happy are you with the new Rips Ride lift? And Ooh. How has that changed the way that folks use and get out of peak eight? I mean, I am so happy with Rips Ride. Honestly, it's a game changer for our ski school and beginner guests, but it also is that quick and easy way to get over to peak nine. And that chairlift ride is is under three minutes now. So it's just, it's more time on snow. And again, it just increases incredibly improve that flow and circulation in one of, you know, arguably one of the best learning terrain pods that we have at BRAC. So super excited with that lift upgrade. So you, you got into this a little bit earlier, but I want to just really underscore this point. So you're also going to replace five chair. That's another old riblet you're going to replace with a high-speed quad. And once you do that, you're going to have three high-speed quads and a high-speed six-pack coming out of the peak eight base. I mean, that should you would think really give folks a lot of options. I was up at North Star and they have those four lifts coming out of their main base and it, it, it saw how it really spread people out. What, what do you anticipate 
skiers will find when they show up to peak eight at Breck next year, as far as just the difference in the experience and congestion and just getting up and out and around the mountain. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's just this reimagination of peak eight. We also removed a big castle structure, a sprung structure. We're really bringing all of our learning terrain down to grade. So even just from a sightlines perspective, it will feel so much more open and less congested and just the the high speed access to get up and out of that peak eight base area is going to be, you know, it's, it's definitely a game time move and we're excited for it. And it also just, again, I, I talked about a little bit earlier, it just really builds the right progression for our guests to start on Rip's ride and then move over to five chair and then move your way across the mountain to Colorado and the Rocky. And I think we're just really thinking about how to improve the guest experience and how they flow and and move about the mountain. It also will serve for Park Lane, which is our terrain park um, guest. So I think just for all of those users, it's going to be just a, a welcome new lift and just really improving that ski school experience as well. And there's a fifth chair penciled into the master plan. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, this may be on land that Vale owns. So, so there was less specificity around this, but it's just referred to as new chair. And my understanding is it would be a beginner chair, lookers left of Rip's ride. What could you tell us about that area and what that new chair and or carpet that you may put in there, what that would achieve as far as expanding the beginner experience? Yeah, I think, to be honest with you, Stuart, that would be probably low priority just because Mm -hmm. we are focusing so much on this new learning terrain as we grade where the kids' castle was. So we're, we're actually building some of those features into this year's expansion. So not much to expand on on that piece. Okay, as you move up the mountain, so you're going to have a lot of high-speed capacity out of the base of Peak 8. As you move up the mountain, as you mentioned, you have some really awesome high alpine terrain. Some really great stuff comes off of Horseshoe Bowl that's currently served by a T-bar that's not mentioned in the master plan as potential for an upgrade. Is Horseshoe Bowl a place where you could put a chairlift either on the existing T-bar line or straight up the bowl? And, And if so, I'm just curious why an upgrade for that lift wasn't included in the master plan. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, we love the T-bar. It is a an absolute classic. It's my favorite place to, to go. But basically, it also pretty much sits on a ridge um, with really high alpine exposure. Mm-hmm. And so a chairlift just wouldn't be able to serve the same function and would frequently be on wind hold, to be honest with you. And, and it's not possible to go straight up the bull, like right through uh, Bull's Trail and Eagle's Nest? No. The aspects up there we're pretty happy with the T-bar. So talk a little bit about Jody, because I'm sure a lot of folks arrive at Breckenridge that are not familiar with mountain environments and the impacts that wind can have. Kensho's and Imperial Superchair do not go to the top of the peaks. They stop short. Um, I, I imagine that's because they wouldn't be able to run very often with wind, but just talk a little bit about citing those lifts and the unload points where Breckenridge did. And I realize, I appreciate that these happened, installations happened before you arrived, but but if you could tell us what you know about that. 
Yeah, I it is it was before my time. I do know when the imperial lift was installed. I I have asked the question so many times. Like, we are at twelve thousand nine hundred and ninety eight feet. <laughs> go to to thirteen thousand. But truly, it is the ridge tops up there just make it impossible to run lifts in that type of wind. So you know, being mindful of that. That's why a lot of the terminating top terminals uh, are located where they are. All right. Going back, unfortunately, to one of these things that happens that you don't want to have to deal with, but have to and kind of have to anticipate. In December, a loaded chair, one skier was on that, I believe, detached from the Peak 8 Super Connect. So tell us what you can about that incident, Jody. And more importantly, I think, how did Breckenridge respond? And it's an echo of what we talked about earlier with the skier fatality is how do your teams respond when something like this happens? And obviously, you know, it was a windy day, so this isn't going to happen under great conditions. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, it's, you know, the safety of our team members and our guests is at all times our highest priority. And I can say without a doubt, we have one of the best lift maintenance teams here in the business. And, you know, it is that high Alpine environment and exceptional weather events have the ability to create a unique and unexpected circumstance. And that's really what it came down to here. We had an abnormal wind gust and wind direction um, compared to what we had been seeing earlier that morning. And combined with the chairlift coming into the terminal, it contacted the components of that upper terminal. Just really grateful and thankful that nobody was injured and that you know we had our experienced lift maintenance and ski patrol team right there immediately as the event happened. So this is a scary event. It's a high profile event. It's something that you think, oh my gosh, that could happen anytime in any chair. How do you go about working with local authorities? Colorado has a very strong tramway board. I don't know who else is involved, but what does that process look like when something like this happens? You know, how do you shut the lift down? And then how do you determine that it's safe to turn it back on again? We have very extensive standard operating procedures that we follow across our operation and our lift maintenance team was right on site, as I mentioned, at the time of the event and worked with the Colorado Tramway Safety Board to report the incident. The lift was closed for the remainder of the day. Our lift maintenance team conducted a thorough inspection, consulted with the Colorado Tramway Safety Board throughout, and we safely opened the lift the next day right around noon. All right, let's move into snowmaking upgrades that are planned here. You know, as we've talked about many times in this conversation, Brexit's at really high altitude. So the need for snowmaking may be a little bit puzzling for some folks, but, you know, it's pretty standard in any modern ski area and you do have some snowmaking now. So talk a little bit about how you envision improving snowmaking at Breck. And and, and really the, the piece of this that I'm most interested in, Jody, is, and I, and I had Joe Vanderkel on the head of SMI Snowmakers on this podcast a few months back, just how much better and more energy efficient modern snowmaking is and how, how this syncs, I guess, with Vale's commitment to zero, because it, it is a resource drain, but it can be done in an efficient way that's still environment friendly. So just talk about the snowmaking upgrades you want to make and what Vale's approach is to this and Breck's approach is to this to make sure that this is not 1970s style snowmaking that's going to hog all the energy in the state? (laughs) It's a great question. And yes, as a company, we are very committed to our commitment to zero by 2030. 
you know, we have snowmaking across all five peaks. Highest concentration is on peaks seven, eight, and nine. And we are progressively upgrading our equipment, you know, year over year. It's a high priority for us. And just this year, we we installed 110 new snow guns with low energy technology. And these energy guns allow us to run more guns simultaneously. And it means making more snow without increasing our energy consumption. So I think, you know, what I would say is we're continuously looking for opportunities to upgrade the system and to ensure that it's the most efficient it can be for so many reasons. And it is, like I say, just a big area of focus. We hear a lot about water shortages in the West, Jody. How does that play out in Breck? Do you have water issues? And if so, how do you work on a reservoir system to recapture snow that melts? How does that whole dynamic play out at your ski resort? Yeah, I mean, it's complex. And, you know, of all the resorts that I've been across, it's slightly different everywhere. It doesn't matter where you operate, snow and water is a very complex part of the operation. And here at Breckenridge, we partner with the town of Breck, local, state, and federal agency for water rights and usage. And we're in a great position. You know, overall, when you really look at snowmaking across the industry, it really accounts for an extremely small fraction of a percent of water use, particularly in the state of Colorado. And a a majority of the water used in snowmaking returns right to the local watershed. So you know, I think it's just important that people understand that. And what is the snowmaking footprint? Like, what's your goal percentage wise for Breck? Because you're obviously not going to cover all 3000 acres. You know, I, I don't have the exact number of acres that we cover here at Breck, um, but it's, it's significant, right? Like we start on peak eight, get our primary trails open for the season. We move over to, to nine to get that portal base open with the core major trails over there. And then we shift back over to seven. So it's, it's quite the dynamic moving operation. And again, it ties back to our flow and circulation and how we can make sure that we're opening our portals as we build energy for the season, if that makes sense, energy and and volume and visitation. It it does. Absolutely. All right, Jody, let's finish up today with a talk on Epic Pass. I'm a little confused with the Epic Pass suite. Maybe you can help me understand this. So Vail has tiered out its Epic Day Pass so that there's three tiers and you can ski all the resorts on the top tier. And then you start to lose resorts as you drop to the middle tier and the lower tier. Breckenridge is available only on the top tier of the Epic Day Pass. You go to the second tier and it's off. However, Breckenridge is unlimited on the Epic Local Pass. I'm just a little confused by this because as you go to the middle tier of the Epic Day Pass, you still get access to Keystone and Crested Butte and some of your other peer resorts. So I'm just curious if you have any insight as to why Vale is treating Breckenridge differently on the Epic Day Pass when access is so generous on Epic Local. Stuart, I love how you are so like zoned in on like (laughs) some of these topics. It's so impressive. Um, I would say when it comes to resort access, we don't see any of our season long passes as apples to apples necessarily Mm -hmm. um, as a comparison point with the various tiers of day passes. But as you know, the pass model is built to provide value. And that value deepens for guests who commit to a full season pass versus an epic day pass. So Breck, while Breck has historically been a big part of, you know, big selling point for epic local passes, 
and that remains true to today. So while the Epic Day Pass is an amazing option compared to lift tickets, if a skier is truly looking for an unlimited access to BRAC, the Epic Local Pass is likely going to be the best fit. And, you know, the, the inclusion of BRAC is unlimited on the Epic Local Pass has always been a little curious to me as well. It, it seems as though moving that up to the Epic Pass as unlimited, maybe having some holiday blackouts on Epic Local would do a lot of help with the congestion issues that you're trying to address in the master plan. Curious if Vale has considered that. And if they have, why ultimately it made sense to just keep BRAC where it is in the Epic Pass suite and keep it unlimited on Epic Local. Yeah, I mean, to a lot of the points we've talked about today is we just have a ton of terrain and plenty of space to accommodate our pass holders who want to ski. So, you know, we really make an impact is is with the lift and terrain utilization at BRAC, which really helps our, our guests navigate the resort. So it'll be a continued focus for us as we move into next winter and throughout that master plan. But I think, you know, that Epic Local Pass has just historically been a, a great product, giving guests that opportunity at, at BRAC and Keystone. All right, Jody. with that, I will give you your day back. I cannot thank you enough for all your time today. I've not been to Breck in a minute. I need to change that. I would love to come out and make some turns with you and the team, but thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Stuart. Great having time with you. That's Jody Churich, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Breckenridge Resort, Colorado. Jody, I really enjoyed that conversation and I am way overdue for a Summit County run. I love the energy there, and I really appreciate the energy and perspective you brought to the storm. Thank you so much for that, and thank you all for listening. We have been firing off the podcast this week. I do have one more in the can. Had a great conversation with IndyPass founder Doug Fish earlier this week on why he sold the pass and what his role will be in the future, and of course, everything happening with the pass for the 2023-24 to ski season. I will turn that one around soon. Other confirmed guests include the leaders of Palisades Tahoe, Heavenly, Deer Valley, Banff, Sun Peaks, Stevens Pass, Dartmouth Skiway, China Peak, and Timberline, West Virginia. And believe it or not, I am already booking podcast guests for the fall. I will host Keystone General Manager Chris Sorensen on the podcast this September. Remember, the very best way to get those episodes as soon as they're live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers to receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.